Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this is going to be a really special episode of the podcast. Listeners who have been with Mike and I from the beginning probably know that my full-time job is working for Southern New Hampshire University as an academic advisor, and actually now also as an instructor. And I am incredibly excited to be joined this week by the president of Southern New Hampshire University, Dr. Paul LeBlanc. Under President LeBlanc's leadership, SNHU has experienced amazing growth, which is something I definitely hope to talk about. SNHU has been listed at number 12 on Fast Company Magazine's 50 Most Innovative Companies in the World. Forbes listed Dr. LeBlanc as one of its 15 classroom revolutionaries and one of the most influential people in higher education. Washington Monthly named him one of America's 10 most innovative university presidents. And Dr. LeBlanc has also served as a senior policy advisor to Undersecretary Ted Mitchell at the U.S. Department of Education. And trust me, there are many, many more things I could have said in this introduction. Dr. LeBlanc, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jesse. Thank you for that lovely eulogy. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. Now, let's get to your story, if we could, to start. So can you explain kind of where you grew up? So I was born in Moncton, New Brunswick. It's um, kind of hard scrabble. Uh, farming village. Most of the families were related. So all my aunts and uncles and cousins in this one awesome. village. Um, you know, from big chunks of the Maritimes, because life has always, you know, it's always been the poorest part of Canada. We grew up in kind of the heart of Acadia. So the Acadian revival movement, which, which began in the 50s, happened in Memram Cook, which is literally Gaines is one village inside Memram Cook. You know, the men would mostly have to work away. Uh, sometimes for weeks and even months at a time. So that was the case with my father. I have four older siblings and he missed chunks of their upbringing because he worked, you know, at the American Air Base in Gander, Newfoundland, and you would live in bunkhouses and work, you know, X, you know, X number of weeks and come home for a few days and go back again. He worked on the, what was called the Dew Line, which is the American Defense Early Warning System. So this was a Cold War string of radar sites across the Arctic Circle, so oh, we could wow. detect Russian missiles if they came over the top. And he worked on canal, you know, lake boats in the Great Lakes. Um, my mother recalls having my oldest sister, her first baby, and then moving to Montreal for a while while he worked the boats. And so life was hard. And back, you know, she was often left to not only raise kids but to take care of this kind of subsistence level. Uh, farm and oh, wow. it was really it was even a bartering economy you know she would trade oh, what she grew and uh for things like flour and salt and so it really it almost you know to an american set of years it almost sounds like country life in the late 1800s right sure. no electricity when i was born in 1957 you know we go back we didn't take vacations we just went back to canada to visit relatives that was vacation right. and uh you know <laughs> they were still outhouses and outdoor pumps for water um, of course, my favorite part of this is my uncle Ronald was a plumber by trade, literally the last guy in the village to get indoor plumbing. <laughs> of course. So it's the old you know, joke about the cobbler's kids going barefoot. <laughs> so when I was, so I came 13 years after my four siblings. And uh, I think at that point, my family kind of had had it. It wasn't a 
world where you could imagine a much better future for your kids. So we immigrated when I was three and I grew up in Waltham, just outside Boston, kind of in a working class neighborhood, south side of Waltham in the shadow of the Waltham watch factory. So then I grew up in the Boston area. Yeah, now, how, how was it specifically that you ended up in New England then, of all the places like you every, could have gone? So like every immigrant group, right? So one was proximity, you know, New Brunswick, Stent, the Maritime Stent, French Canadians all up and down the through Maine. And of course, the next stop south of Maine, if you don't, if you ignore the 13 miles of New Hampshire, um, <laughs> is Massachusetts. And, and, and then the classic immigrant story, right, is somebody from the village moved, immigrated, got a job, wrote back home and said, there are jobs here. Sure. When we moved down, the first, you know, we did the classic thing, right? We lived with an uncle at first. And, and then you sort of, my father, you know, found a job pretty quickly. He was, you know, my parents had eighth grade educations and he was a day laborer. So he got a job working at construction sites, but it was enough to rent an apartment, you know, and we rented an apartment in the, literally the poorest street in the town. And it's still oh, wow. the street where the, whatever the recent immigrant group is today, it's Dominicans. That's where the Dominicans live, right? Sure. Before us, it was Italians and after us, it was whatever. So it's a classic immigrant story. And my mother worked in a factory and she, they cleaned houses on the weekends. I mean, they worked incredibly hard. And we never, I don't want to make it sound like we were living in abject poverty. We never went hungry. We always had clean clothes. You know, um, we weren't wealthy, but we also weren't suffering. And, we, and the sure. other thing is, everybody we knew was in the same boat. Like everyone in the neighborhood. Was, so it didn't feel like you were somehow, you know, you didn't have a sense of, um, I don't know, being deprived. Sure. Now, was there a substantial Acadian community? In that area? So there is a good sized Canadian Acadian community in um in Waltham and in the Boston area. But you know, the story of the Acadians, which is its own particular subgroup in French Canada, is one of dispersal and di diaspora. So the Cajuns of Louisiana is just short shortened phrase for Acadians. And I remember my first trip there. I went to Acadiana, which is not New Orleans. People sometimes say, oh, Acadia, New Orleans. Like, nope, it's further north. It's in the swamplands, um, which is ironically, you know, the reason there were so many Acadians in the marshlands of the Maritimes is that from France, they had learned to be really good at building dikes and levees and marshalling that land. And that's what they did in New Brunswick. And that's what they, it's where they landed up in Louisiana. But mm. everyone, was a LeBlanc or a Boudreaux or a Boucher. These are the, all the family names in my extended family. And they all look like my relatives. I felt like I was at <laughs> um, But if we look at our own family history from the from the what's called the Great Acadian Expulsion, when the British, after, the, after they beat, defeated the French and took over Canada, they expelled most Acadians. You know, they ended up in Haiti. They ended up in Louisiana. They ended up back in France. Some went into hiding into the woods, you know, and, and, and barely survived, but sort of finally emerged again. So you find them all over. Sure. Now, did you speak French in the house growing up? So everyone in my family speaks French bilingual. Um, New Brunswick is the only officially bilingual province in Canada. Well, I was three when we immigrated, so I didn't speak much. But to the extent sure. that I did, I spoke French first. But, you know, the thing is, and this is a share i've had this conversation with immigrants from many cultures and languages when you're the kid a kid as an immigrant the last thing you want to do is speak your native language sure right? like you you want to fit in you don't want to be marked right. as an outsider to my regret in some ways because my spoken french is almost non-existent my comprehension is pretty high so my mom died a few years ago when she was 96 
she would still primarily speak to me in French and I would speak oh, back to her awesome. in English. I think she actually spoke in Fringlish because she would <laughs> sure. go back and forth in the same sentence, mixing English and French words. When I'm back there or if I'm traveling, for example, to France, it's within days, I feel like my comprehension is just flooding back, right? Because this stuff is pretty hardwired. But no, I, I sort of tried to learn English as quickly as I possibly could. No, it's interesting. This sounds like a sim similar story to my parents, kind of same thing when they were kids. They grew up speaking French in the house, but they haven't been so long that they understand a lot more. But when it comes time to try to speak it themselves, yeah. they get they sometimes get frustrated trying to find words. Yeah. Now, did, did you keep in touch with relatives back? Do you still have sure. relatives that you keep in touch with back in New Brunswick? Oh, tons. My sister lives there still. Awesome. One of my two sisters and tons of cousins, of course. There was for the longest time just this constant back and forth. So people would come down and work for a few months, sometimes undocumented, right? You just sure. go across the board and get a job, get paid under the table, sometimes legally or in a documented way. It reminds me a lot in some ways uh, without nearly the level of suffering and certainly not what we see today. But for a long time along the Mexican-American border, people went back and forth all the time. And it was kind of a seamless, easy thing to do. That was true as well, right up to 9-11 um, on the Canadian border. 9-11 changed everything and those things became hard. But yeah, so as I said, we didn't take vacations. We just went back and visited the family. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like my folks, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and it was great. I mean, I remember, you know, going back and spending time in the summers as a little kid and, you know, it's country life, right? So no sort of worrying about traffic and streets and allowed to run wild through the fields and grab a fishing rod and go in the woods and go fish, trout fishing. and you know, hay rides and they had horses, you know, if you're a little kid, I'm like, <laughs> you know, there were these big old massive workhorses that were made for pulling hay wagons, but they would get on their back without a saddle and lumber around the fields. And it was, it was a really lo I have lovely, lovely memories of that. That is awesome. That's really, really fun. Now, um, I know you have a couple of daughters, correct? I do. Now, now, did you introduce them to this heritage culture when they were growing up? Yeah, you know, it's sometimes, I've written about this and told the story that it was my access to affordable higher ed that really allowed me to be the first member of my family to go to college. Really the first, we didn't know anybody in our neighborhood who went to college. Sure. Right. So this was foreign territory. And of course that changed the whole trajectory of my kids' lives. And they've had, they now live lives that my parents could scarcely have imagined, right? With their eighth grade educations and working seven yeah, days absolutely. a week. Yeah. So, um, but but my kids were really lucky in that they've grown up with this big sprawling clan of a family who adores them. And even if they live in different worlds, it kind of doesn't matter because what matters most is your family. And that's awesome. You know, they're super close to my sister in New Brunswick, for example, um, with all my siblings for that matter. Um, and I think it's one of the things I'm most pleased with is that they had that experience. They have that experience, but they had that time with my parents such that. I think their values are very grounded in these down to earth things that matter. And, you know, Acadian culture is so interesting because there are a lot of things it isn't, and we could talk about that, but there are a lot of things that it is, and there are things that matter. Um, so there's a kind of generosity that comes in that culture. There is a, um, a sense of uh, always helping those in need in that culture, of sharing what you have in that culture. There's also a joy in music. You know, if you think about, Zydeco and Cajun music, sure. which has a place in a cage, you know, and a family gathering when we were back home was as likely as not to have someone breaking out a guitar and someone else <laughs> grabbing a fiddle, right? And, and every and everyone singing. 
those things are really sort of joyous things. And I think my kids have had a really wonderful opportunity to, uh, to experience that. And then ironically, my oldest daughter, Emma, who was a Rhodes Scholar and studying uh, on her Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford, went on to stay at Oxford to do her doctorate. And she was doing it in anthropology and was really interested in cultures that live outside of kind of prescribed kind of law, not just law, but prescribed structures of our society. So originally she was studying, going to study with Bedouin cultures in mm -hmm. Syria. And she had been living in Damascus. Oh, wow. And because that's a culture that kind of lives outside modern life. It's it's out it's it's outside the norm and kind of alongside the norm and Bedouin yeah, right. Too, right? Yeah. But she was really interested in their world. But of course the Syrian civil war broke out. She was working as a photographer and a journalist there as well, got kicked out by the regime. And then the question was like, well, where am I now going to study? Like, how, what, how does that work out? And she ended up discovering an Acadian community in far northern New Brunswick, right up, right up, tucked up against the Quebec border, but far north. And it's an Acadian forest worker community. So these are these are people who get their life from the forest. So they work for Irving, which is a huge conglomerate that runs paper mills and kind of either they work for it or they hate it and work against it. Um, but they also, you know, they, they make maple syrup every year and they grow pot out in the woods and sure. sell that in the kind of black market economy. Um, and they just, they pull together a living. So she lived with that in that community for quite a long time and ended up writing her dissertation for field work about this kind of modern Acadian forest worker community as it comes headlong into modernity. You know, it's like, oh, wow. that's not a culture that's built for corporate life. It's not a culture sure. that's built for kind of, you know, the rapaciousness of extraction industries like timber and paper. Um, and I think she really, it was funny because here, so here she is kind of full circle back Absolutely. to her roots. And it was fun sharing her dissertation with my siblings because it's academic, right? And she was yeah. bringing the perspective of an anthropologist and ways of understanding the culture. So obviously my siblings grew up in that culture and know it in their bones, but they never had a theoretical framework for understanding it. And they read her dissertation and they would call me and go, I never understood this. Or <laughs> yeah, sure. like, we used to do sure. that too, but I didn't get like I didn't put it together. So it was an it was a really fun learning experience. No, that's that's really neat. I mean, that reminds me of one of the things that I know my producer especially has learned through this podcast is he hears a lot of these stories and then it reminds him of stuff he grew up with, but he had no yeah. idea that yeah. these things that he grew up with were not unique to his family, were part of this larger cultural tradition. Yeah. So it's really But you know, we also when we talk about this, it's like, so what what didn't they what don't you grow up right. with, Rob? And so I would say if I can make and it's a broad generalization, there are lots of exceptions, including myself and my kids. But Acadia, Acadian culture doesn't place a huge emphasis on education, for example. Sure. And, you know, that was like no, like a good job in our family was one where you worked inside and not outside in the elements. It wasn't about like there was, right, it doesn't right, yeah, have that absolutely. Kind of, not only does it not have that kind of ambition, but if somebody manifests a little bit of that ambition and starts to like do things out of that, the cultural norm, it's almost like, who do you think you are? Like you're getting pretty full of yourself, aren't you? And there's this almost, you know, there's this sort of expression about, you know, cutting down the tallest daisy, right? Like, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating culture. And this is true in other cultures as well, by the way, but we're talking about Acadia. 
So the, how did you end up <laughs> going to school then, given this background? Growing up in that neighborhood where we didn't know anybody who went to college, my mother cleaned houses in Weston, Mass., which is, I think, still the wealthiest community in Massachusetts. It's a suburb, big, big houses. Um, it's where a lot of pro athletes live and CEOs. And she cleaned houses for extra money. And she would often bring me and plunk me down in the sort of library of this beautiful home and give me kids' books. And it's kind of where I learned to learn English, just sitting in that beautiful library. And I could hear her, wow. you know, humming and singing, she always sang, right? And she would be vacuuming or cleaning other rooms and she'll check in with me, but I could sort of, I was a nerd, so I could sit in the window seat <laughs> and get lost in these kids' books. It was the woman who owned that, in that couple, Mrs. Thompson, I still remember the Thompsons, who really for the first time talked to my mother about me being smart. Like, oh, Paul's so smart, like he's such a good reader, he picked it up so quick. I don't know that I'm that smart, but maybe she's just being <laughs> kind. Kind of take that and hold that for a second. And then a sort of very momentous conversation with my sixth grade teacher, Mark Schlafman, who went on to become an MBA rep and not a very good one, but he's a really nice guy. <laughs> awesome. He's a really nice guy. And you know, it was a parent teacher meeting in sixth grade when he said, you know, Paul really could go to college someday. I think he's college material. And it's funny because, you know, people still used expressions like that back then. You either like college track or vocational track, right? right. And it was yep. literally tracking. But I think, you know, it's the first time anyone ever said to my mother, one of your kids could go to college. And it hit her like a lightning bolt. And she had no idea what it meant to go to college in terms of like, what do you have to do? And what about financial aid? And how will you pay for it? And right. what's the process? But she held on to this promise um, in a remarkable way and, and made it mine, right? Like she had the force of of being a mother right so it became my problem it's like right. you're gonna go to college someday you're gonna go to college someday and some point as a kid you start believing that right and i've subsequently written about this because we often talk about what keeps poor kids out of college is often the obvious which is a po poverty poverty of finance right but but there's also can be a poverty of aspiration like you don't dream big enough dreams for yourself and if you can't dream it you'll never do it and she started to dream this dream for me. And you know, for her, because she took pride when oh, I went to college. Right. But she had this dream for me. And then it was really a string of teachers, Mrs. Collins and you know, high school who took me under her wing and became a kind of mentor and you know, talked to me about college. So all of a sudden I'm here in college. And that's that was really, you know, it wasn't it was obviously the ability to afford it. And in those days, you know, I worked construction. I grew up in a family of people in the trades and I work construction in the summers, but I could work construction in the summers and do a little work study during the year and pay my tuition. Like oh, wow. it was affordable. You can't do that today. I no, went to a state college. Right. Um, but, but as important as it was to be able to afford it was the ability to imagine it. And yeah. that's, and that's what those early conversations did. That's amazing. I mean, and I think that you, was the difference, sorry. right? Yeah. And you mentioned how, there's almost like a cultural, uh, I don't know if it was a pressure to not, you know, try to reach out to further education, to go, you know, beyond maybe what the expectation would have been of somebody in your family. Did you run into any of that brushback yourself? Yeah, you know, no, I think it, I want to want to be clear. I think it's not so much that there is a resistance to, I just don't think it comes up as a goal. Like it's just gotcha. not in the conversation. So when people would talk about, you know, when you sort of define a good life or what a good job is, it was more basic than that. It was, 
yeah, you know, like you're, you're working inside instead of outside. Like my father yeah. had to work out in the elements all his life. Takes a toll, right? It's not great sure. in the winter. Oh, of course. So that was always a good job. And, <laughs> you know, if you ever scored a government job, because a lot of the jobs in the Maritimes, which is a poor economy, a lot of people work in federal or provincial government jobs. That was like hitting the lottery because you've got a pension. Absolutely. You know, you right. Stuff's happening, right? And it's steady, you know, part of being poor and the kinds of jobs that lots of my family has work is not always steady you took you know you take jobs when they come and sometimes they yeah. dry off or the economy goes bad and then you know it was did you have a good truck do you own your house <laughs> or do you do you own yeah. your house or do you rent like that's yeah. a big provider um you know uh the ability to always have a lot of food on the table um so we never went hungry and i think my family grew up my parents grew up in the depression when you literally knew people who were hungry who didn't have right. enough food. And by the way, this is happening in America today, right? Of Look course. The news was, right? And yeah. you know, you may know that with some of the Recovery Act money, we've been able to do emergency grants to students. We've done thousands of them. The number one need, food. Yeah. Think about it's crazy. that. That's in America, twenty twenty one. Yeah. So so it wasn't that they resisted education in an active way. It just never came up. It wasn't yeah. a thing. You know, it was, it was how, you know, for a lot of my family, the minute you didn't have to finish high school back then, I think you could leave high school when you hit 16, if I remember correctly. And at 16, they jumped into the trades. And by the way, sure. a lot of them made pretty good money. You know, if you're a plumber or a carpenter, a good carpenter, you make a lot of money. No, of course. So it's not, yeah. And it's not about intelligence. Like I'm the oh, one absolutely. family to go to college. My siblings are as smart or smarter than me in every instance. My mother was super smart eighth grade education, right? So like you've heard me say this before, Jessica, because you work long enough as a Jew, but you know, talent is universally distributed. It's just that right. opportunity is not. In the poorest communities in America, there are kids every bit as smart and talented as those in the richest communities. They may, not be, well, they may not be as well educated and they certainly don't have the opportunity. That's the difference. No, no question. I'm the first uh, male in my extended family to have gone to school too and even if me and my dad were to play jeopardy 10 minutes from now i would be in major trouble that's, that's <laughs> yeah. absolutely the case now yeah. i would like to talk about snhu for sure um i grew up in manchester i went to new hampshire college basketball camp as a kid sure. when i was growing up yeah, and Stan Spiro, i just talked to him today <laughs> there you go. The camp. let me suggest uh the place looks a little bit different now than when I was growing up attending New Hampshire College camp. So maybe you could talk about what the university looked like when you started with SNHU, kind of where it is now and how yeah. that amazing transition took place. So when I came in 2003, uh, we had changed our name not that long before. I think it had only been a couple of years that we had changed it from New Hampshire College to Southern New Hampshire University. We had about 2,500 students. Most of them were on the campus, the traditional campus, which is on the hooks at Manchester line. Line literally runs through the middle of campus. The campus was tired at that point. So the original buildings, you know, had been the campus had been built in the late 60s on what had been two or three farms. So the Belknap Farm, and we have a Belknap building on campus that carries that name. But the campus, you know, at that point was now nearing 40 years old and it had a modest start. So it had a lot of wood frame buildings and those buildings are not built to last 300 years. They're not like the stone buildings of Harvard or Oxford. So the campus needed a lot of attention at the time. It had a small online program, had about 
16, 17 people who worked in it. Amelia Manning, who's our chief operating mm -hmm. officer, was one of them. Kind of tucked away in a nondescript end of a nondescript building. But they were doing some good work. And like I said, I think that a few hundred students. There was a hunger. So the things that were great about it, those are the challenges. We didn't have much money, but we were not in the red. We were in the black, but barely, but we were in the black. <laughs> um, we had been on the map, like the place that come close to closing in the early 80s. And my predecessor, Dick Gustafson, eventually came in and did a great job turning things around. Um, and he had built a stability that I could build off of. So I inherited a good foundation. More important than the money and the facilities, though, was sort of the attitude and the sense of self and mission. Because what was never lost, even in the tough times, was a real focus on students and a sense that SNHU serves working people, first generation students. They were, you know, in reality, they served kids like me. And I really resonated to that mission. There was also, I remember, the you know, lengthy process by which you go, you know, you go through the interviews, et cetera, as part of the process of landing the job, included time on campus and, you know, kind of an intense two or three days of meeting with one group after another after another. And the constant refrain really was, we want to be better. And now people define better in lots of ways. So I'm not sure that people who said it then would be happy with where we've come now. They might have had a different better a version of better, but there was a hunger to change and a hunger to improve. And that's critical because if a culture and an organization is self-satisfied, if it's happy where it is, or if it's lazy and doesn't want to do the work, it's very hard to get better. But this was a place where people wanted to be better. They wanted to, that, you know, it's that version of what I said earlier, you have to be willing to dream bigger dreams for yourself. So that's where we started out. And so kind of set out our work. And when I looked at what our options were, I often say I, I teach in a program for new presidents uh, at Harvard occasionally. So for first time college and university presidents. And I often say that when you get a presidency, it's like being invited into a high stakes poker game. There's a lot at stake, right? You got to get it right. You get people depending on you. And you get dealt a set of cards and they look different from institution to institution. So what do good poker players do? They, they play their best cards and they don't, they don't pursue low percentage strategies. You know, you never chase an inside straight. That's, that's an amateur move. Unless you're getting great um, odds, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so when I looked at what we had to work with, I knew we had a lot of good things happening, a lot of good people. But I thought a card that we had, we could play, and there was a card that gave us particular strength was our online operation. Because at the time, there just weren't a lot of not-for-profits in the online space. My background had been in technology. I was convinced that online learning was going to take off. And I thought, if we can get ahead of that, if we can be part of the first generation that really grows with it, we could have what some people call first mover advantage. And, and that's what we started to work on. You know, that, that original group of 16, 18 people, we, I worked directly with them and really dug in to say, what would it take to grow this? You know, and, and that was a lot of hard change. And, but, but over those next three, four, five years, we did a lot of the groundwork. And it's the least sexy part of the story because the groundwork meant like really revisiting our processes and how we handle leads when they come in. Someone, someone says they're interested, what happens then? And we had kind of slow processes, antiquated processes. I thought we didn't have enough online offerings. We needed to persuade the faculty to give us more options. 
So we did all of that work. And then around 2009, we started to ask the question, could we compete with the big online players who were mostly for-profits at the time? That's when Phoenix was in its heyday and ITT and Corinthian. Could we compete with those guys? What would be required? And, and how could we compete? And we set out to, to sort of put those parts in play. And we started some more generalized marketing. And we thought we had done a lot of that foundational work in the previous years that we could start to spend some money on marketing. And then, you know, we also, the recession hit, the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. As you know, enrollments in college are counter-cyclical. So when employment goes up, enrollments go up. And unemployment goes up, excuse mm -hmm. me. Yep. Enrollments go up. So, so that was happening. So people were looking for, people wanted to go back and retool, get a degree. So people were enrolling. And at the very same time, the not-for-profits were still very slow to get in, so we didn't have a lot of competition from our peers, and the for-profits were under attack. By that point, the Obama administration were going after them. Um, Senator Harkin, who led the health, Senate Health Committee, was going after them. Sure. Uh, New York Times and shows like Frontline were featuring very negative stories. So they were back on their heels. We had no competition, and what we had was like a running back, a lot of green field ahead of us. And that's when we really started to to grow. And it was a rocket ride between 20 and 2012, Babson University, which publishes a list of the largest nonprofit providers of online education, ranked us number 50 out of the 50 largest. That was 2012. Just three years later in 2015, we were number four. I mean, we were hiring yeah. 30 and 40 full-time people every week. We had people sitting at card tables. We had boxes of computers, <laughs> right? And yeah, we yeah. didn't know how to scale that fast. So we broke, I think, everything. Like we stumbled all over the place, sure. but we learned. And through all of our missteps, we continued to take really good care of students, which was the critical thing. And we got better at it. So, you know, if you think about it today, we went from 2,500 students to about 170,000. In 2003, wow. our budget was about 53 million. This year, it'll probably pass a billion dollars. Our reach is global. Um, we had hundreds of employees. Today we have thousands of employees. In the last nine months alone, our online enrollments have grown by about 30,000. Wow. We've hired over 600 people in the last nine months. Uh, we've ex we have an operations center in Tucson. They're working remotely, of course, now. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's been a it's been a crazy, fun, amazing ride. And most importantly, we've been helping you know, tens of thousands of students better their lives. No, that's excellent. And you mentioned the global outreach of SNHU. Can you talk a little bit about the work with the refugees? Because I think that's just an amazing program. Yeah, so our GEM program, which stands for Global Education Movement, is a program we started about five years ago now. Christina Russell, who heads GEM for us, at the time was working in Kigali for one of our partners where we were doing some programming, some uh, degree programs. And she was also volunteering in a refugee camp called Kaziba Camp in Western Rwanda. So when I was visiting her program uh, there and I had known Christina from a prior life, she said, would you like to come with me to visit this camp? Never mentioned doing anything there, just would you like to visit? And I thought it would be interesting to see a camp. I'd never been in one before. So we went with my family um, who was traveling with me and it was an incredibly moving day. It was a searing day, like to see that level of suffering and poverty 
18,000 people living in this, you know, camp in the middle of nowhere. Uh, they couldn't, there wasn't, you know, enough soil or resources to grow their own food. So they were living on UN rations. At the time, it was $16 a month of rations, um, you know, flour, palm oil, that kind of stuff. Um, and really a kind of hopeless place. You know, I think people don't realize the average time of being a refugee now has gone up to, I think, over 21 years. Oh, wow. You don't become a refugee for a year or two. You become right. a refugee for a good part of your life. The next day after this kind of amazing emotional experience, I remember we were in, I think there were three Land Rovers in our little caravan making its way from the camp back to the local town. And uh, in each of the van trucks, I think all you heard was either silence or sobbing. People were so moved. Wow. And the next day I said to Christina, I mean, I hardly slept a wink. And I was like, what could we do? And I said to look at, is there something we can do with education? I mean, I know we can't solve the refugee problem. We don't do food aid. There are lots of things we don't do, but, but we know what we do do, which is sure. educate. And, she got, she, and this was, you know, she said, I knew you'd say that if you saw it. And so turns out this was her plan all the way along. So Christina yeah. should get all the credit for bringing our programs to Gazeba. But that's where we started. And the word of that work got out and we were approached by some donors and asked what it would take to expand. And we have since now expanded our GEM program, our refugee education program to camps in Malawi, which is by some counts the poorest country in the world. to so the Zalega camp with its 40,000 residents. So twice the size of Kaziba. We're in Kakuma camp up in Northwest remote in some dangerous, a desert climate Kakuma camp, largest refugee camp in the world. That's 200,000 people. Oh, wow. It's like a sprawling city of sheds and shacks. Um, and then we um, are also working with refugee populations who are not in camps. Most refugees are not in camps. We always think of refugee camps, but in sure. fact, 70% of refugees are just displaced into nearby countries. So we are working with refugees in Cape Town, South Africa, in Nairobi, in Lebanon, um, in the Bacaw Valley, in Tripoli. So um, it's a continuing to expand. Um, it's a remarkable work. It's inspiring. Every time I get a chance to visit it or engage, um, you come away marveling at the resiliency and bravery and grit of these learners. Um, it's some of the it's it's among the work of which I'm most proud uh, as president. It's in, to me it's amazing having grown up in this town to think that the for what for me it was a, you know the small school in the North End when I was growing up that now sure. has this major worldwide incredibly important impact. It's just terrific terrific story. Yeah, it's funny because I think in some ways you know if you ask people in higher education. The further away you get from Manchester, in some ways, the more people would know our sort of current story. But it's a little bit like, you know, <laughs> you could win the Nobel Prize, but when you go home for Sunday dinner, you're still stinky, the kid, you know, didn't, you know, whatever. Like, right. your, your, your local presence always lags behind your global presence. No, that's interesting. No, I did need to ask you one question, if you don't mind, um, because I've, through this podcast, I've gotten to know quite a few uh, university professors from all over the place yeah. and one of the questions that I get asked most often it's always it's worded differently but it's always something along the lines of I teach French I've taught French at the university level for a very long time every year I'm seeing fewer and fewer students wanting to enroll in the classes I offer what do you suggest we do that's the question I get a lot I'm very curious to hear how you would approach that question the study of languages in the U.S. has always been fraught territory 
we are a country that by dint of our sheer size and our power and the fact that we are only abutted by two other countries, Mexico and Canada, um, we have had less impetus or incentive to learn multiple languages. I mean, it's not at, at all unusual, as you know, for a European to speak multiple languages, but think about it. The countries are the size of Rhode Island, right? And the population. So, so it's a little bit different. So that part of this is a broader cultural piece. The second, I think, is that we live in a country whose language is the dominant language of the world. So it used to be that at least the French had diplomacy, but not anymore, really. And English has long been the language of business globally. So, so we are the sort of second factor in here is that we, we have the dominant language. There's less incentive to learn. Um, and then I think it's a question of perceived relevancy. What, you know, that the humanities in general have been battling for their survival as people move increasingly to those professions perceived to lead directly to great jobs. So STEM jobs, for example, or jobs in health. And the humanities have not always made their case very well. So if you think, you know, well, it's important to be cultured, like that's not gonna resonate with people um, as opposed to, you know, mastering a language demonstrates the competencies of language acquisition, it's a certain kind of critical thinking. It's an ability to translate across cultural boundaries. Like there's so much that goes into learning a language that is well beyond grammar and vocabulary. Of course. Um, but rarely is that story told. And it's interesting because a lot of the skills we associate with the humanities, and I'm talking about more than French, but the humanities generally are things that employers say are hard to find that they really value. Critical thinking, the ability to navigate meaning, um, working with others, uh, crossing cultural boundaries, like all of those things are more associated with the humanities. So I don't think we're going to see, sadly, some sort of second renaissance of language education in the US. And when we came close to something like that, it was mostly Chinese, and it mostly sure. had to do with China as the future of business. Right. Right. I think there will always be students it will be a small number but there will always be students who love languages and will want to study french i think it's much more likely to be a second major or more likely a minor so i know i have to study business but i'd love to live in europe and i'd love to live in paris so i'm also going to learn french along the way gotcha. um, i think yeah so it's not a it's not a very encouraging picture for those of french descent i would imagine that we will see as we see in lots of communities, an attempt to recover language for one's children and grandchildren. And that can be in specialized language schools, weekend schools, it could be a resolve to speak more French at home. I think it can take lots of forms. Well, I know you gotta get going, Joe, but I very much appreciate your time, Dr. Lamont. This was- Yeah, it was a pleasure. I'm glad we were able to tell this story because it's a super important story. And it's what's kind of cool is it's a Manchester story. Yeah, it is. And it's it's um it's an important story in Manchester, I think. And I think the you know, the French Canadian presence throughout New England in some ways is underappreciated. We recognize it here in Manchester because of the right. West Side and the long tradition, particularly of Quebecois, young women mostly working in the mills. So 
you know, I have friends who grew up in Manchester on the west side who say, you know, till the 1970s, if you worked at St. Mary's, you had to speak French before you. Of course. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, of course, people know Shea Vachon. These kind of <laughs> Absolutely. But if you think about it, for the big percentage of French Canadian immigrants in New England and in Quebec, uh, especially, we are not well represented in the ranks of CEOs and politicians. And again, I think it goes back to a certain sense of self and what's important and what's not important and how you think about ambition, et cetera. I mean, you want you have time a quick follow up on that. I'm curious because one thing that I've talked about um, with a couple of different people before, um, along those same lines, is if you go to say Glendy, it's a big Greek event here in yeah, Manchester. Yeah. You can get every single politician from school yep. board all the way through to U.S. senator in attendance. Um, yeah, we have a really tough time having you know any type of even local politician at all show up for our Franco-American events that we have here yep. in Manchester. Um, and some of the things I've been told quite a bit is that there is such a thing as the Greek vote, where there isn't such a thing as the quote unquote French right. vote. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is? I remember reading articles about this. Um, I think the University of Maine at Orno had, at least had, may still have a pretty big kind of French Canadian studies program. Among the things they concluded um, is that the the sort of French population of New England, in fact, doesn't vote at the same levels it's got a little bit there's kind of you know acadians are famous for their stubborn non-conformity so like i'm not going to vote because i don't trust any of you it's a kind of rugged individual <laughs> sure. right sure. and it bucks there's a kind of cultural chafing at at sort of formal structures you know the reason the british you know the reason the british kicked the acadians out of the maritimes was that they refused to sign loyalty to the british right but what we have to remember is that they didn't sign loyalty, signal loyalty to anybody. There was right. this fierce independence, you know, and it's kind of captured beautifully in Cajun culture. It's like, let me live my life the way I want. It's my daughter would describe this as still true in that community with which she studied. We don't have the kind of cultural cohesion in some ways that you do in the Greek immigrant community of Manchester. We have big families, right? A lot of Catholics, we have a lot of babies. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And people work hard. Um, they're good citizens and good neighbors. It's not that. But they don't have that same sense of civic duty, I think, um, that you might see in some other communities. They don't wield, their self-identity is not, I'm French Canadian first. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. That's all. Yeah, so, so it's an interesting dynamic. Um, you know, if someone could ever rally the French Canadian vote of Manchester, and some people have. Uh, Manchester has enough of a big community that people like Sil Dupree. Yeah, plenty of people Montaigne, still try for sure. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But those were these are successful politicians who were elected to office because they were able yeah. to rally that vote. But it's still more rare than common. You still see Steve Marshall every time he runs for governor, puts a fleur de yeah. on every sign he possibly can. It's in Manchester. But. Yeah, no, exactly. This, is, this was way, way fun. And the group in Maine definitely still exists. In fact, I did a presentation oh, okay. not that long ago, held an event for him. So I thank you very, very much, Dr. LeBlanc. It's a awesome. pleasure talking to you. Thank Stay you very well. much, sir. You got to have okay. a good one. Bye-bye. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive
Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.